This is the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 33, with Natasha Deals. Natasha's work combines choreographed movement, video animation, instrumental practice, and cynical play to create worlds of curiosity and unease. She wrote The Colors Don't Match for Talk in 2014, and it's recorded on our 2019 album, Ur. Her recent and upcoming work includes Papillon and the Dancing Cranes for Construction Cranes and Giant Butterfly, presented by Borealis Festival and Dear Antwerp, OK Fantastic for Talia Ensemble, and Somewhere Beautiful, a solo performance project. Ongoing is a six-part TV-style miniseries with the Jack Quartet. These pieces have been screened on a billboard truck driving through NYC, performed at the Banff Center for the Arts, and the series will receive its full premiere at the Annenberg Center in 2024. Natasha is a founding member of the composer-performer collective Ensemble Pomplamoose, established 2003, and she teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. Natasha Deals will be performing on night two of Swoonfest, Talk's 10th anniversary festival, happening on May 5th and 6th at the Clemente Center. If you are listening to this before 4-20-2023, that's April 20th, you can head to our website, talkensemble.com, to reserve your early bird tickets at a sweet discount. The link for that is in the show notes. Without any further ado, here is our conversation with Natasha Deals. I'm Charlotte, vocalist of Talk. I'm Ellery, the percussionist from Talk. And we're here with Natasha Deals today. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you. You are a longtime talk friend and collaborator, and we are so, so, so excited that you're going to open the second night of Swoonfest with a solo set. Would you please describe what audience members can expect from that set? Yes. I am doing a solo set that involves video and some not fancy at all percussion and uh, some abstract storytelling. And the piece, the set, which is called Somewhere Beautiful is divided into three pieces. And the first piece is called Somewhere Beautiful and involves a lot of electronic sounds and some glockenspiel and um, a sort of life to death story. And the second piece involves a drawing machine that I made um, that acts as a MIDI controller and plays kind of very incessantly neurotic sounds that kind of accumulate over over some time. And there's also a video that I made that accompanies that. And the last piece is called The God-Fearing Woodsman, which is the only piece that's not new of that set which involves a very boring story. And I'm so happy that Tak is going to accompany me on that piece as the four assistants. Yes. And it ends a little bit in a dark, sad moment, but that's okay. <laughs> is the life to death story in the first piece also dark, would you say? No. I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. Is that what you did on the Pomple Move show last November? Yes. Or part of it? Yeah, I didn't think that was dark. Yeah, I kind of made it a little bit more upbeat for that presentation of it because I felt weird about the 
dark part of it, but I might revert to my earlier version of it. I'm not sure yet. Yeah, we like a little darkness. <laughs> That'll fit the setting for sure. Well, I think of you as someone who really likes to work with other people. So it's interesting to me that you've been developing this solo set, although talk is going to be in it. It's pretty much just Natasha and electronics. How do you feel about writing just for yourself? What's that process like? How is it different from writing for other people? I feel really weird about it. Um, the reason I developed that set was because I it's become progressively more difficult for me to find opportunities to perform. My main performance thing is is Ensemble Pamplemousse, and we all live in different places now, and it's just hard for us to get together. And so, you know, we just don't play as much as we used to. And I really missed performing, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just try to do something kind of on my own. But like you said, I really like to work with other people, so I was like, well, but maybe I can just keep this you know, this piece in there that also involves other people, but it has like a very limit, very minimal amount of required rehearsal. And so I can find those people wherever I do that set and teach them the piece and then we can do it together. So, so it's not actually a solo set. It's like mostly a solo set. Yeah. That's a really nice model to make sure you incorporate people from wherever you're playing. Yeah. I mean, I like it and it's worked out well so far. I know I've talked to you before about electronics, maybe having personalities or having agency. Do you ever feel like the electronics you work with are kind of like collaborators? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely think of electronics as their own instrument. Maybe like the electronics are the me in the piece, because usually when I write pieces, I'm thinking about the people I'm writing for. And maybe the electronics are kind of like the part of it that's that's the me part of it in it or something. Mm. But when I write solo pieces, I, I don't, yeah, maybe, maybe because I really like to work with other people. I don't really ever think of them as solo pieces. I think of them as solo plus somebody else piece. So like I wrote this clarinet piece, but it was the solo clarinet piece, but it was for clarinet and like a mannequin head. <laughs> so it wasn't really a solo piece. It was like for two, two people, but one of them is not alive. So yeah, I definitely think about I guess, the personality of the electronics. And right now I'm mostly just using sine waves, which is kind of, I don't know, what does that say about <laughs> the personality of my electronics right now? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think of sine waves as super neutral. But yeah, maybe that's... <laughs> they can sound like anything. They're, they're like the pure building blocks of sound. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's really curious. Um, I was trying to think about your quote-unquote sound earlier and it always involved some kind of electronics at least in conception and definitely in, in uh, performance has it always been the case yeah I've never written an acoustic piece actually except I recently wrote actually the last piece I wrote for Jack Quartet is acoustic kind of <laughs> but I'm thinking about how to fix it and I think I'm gonna fix it by adding electronics <laughs> <laughs> I think I just, you know, I I really I really enjoy using electronics and I like working with them. I like the sounds and I get something out of those sounds that is different and unique from acoustic instruments in the same way that I get something out of acoustic instruments that's different and unique from what I get from electronics. And there's, yeah, I think it's, for me, it's like mostly I'm just drawn to the sound of computers and electronics and 
I when that's not present in my music, I feel a little bit like hmm, like confused or something. Like like somebody's yeah, somebody's missing from the group. You know, that's kind of what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. Like when you go on tour and like Charlotte's not there, you're like, oh, where's Charlotte? Or when one of your bandmates isn't there. That's kind of what it feels like when I write or <laughs> the electronics are missing. Have you ever written a piece that was like purely electronic, whatever that would mean, like an acousmatic piece or like just a tape piece or? Um, I wrote a version. Yeah, I think I've done that twice. I wrote a version of the, um, or I made a version of the uh, the piece that Talk did with Pomplamoose last summer or that part of Talk did with Pomplamoose. I made an electronic version of that piece but it used recordings from that session actually and then like a long time ago I made an electronic piece that we performed with lasers (laughs) a really long time ago like 2010 or something it was a laser light show plus tape piece (laughs) whoa yes that was fun dangerous but fun maybe we should remount that one would you consider it I don't know I don't know if I can find it I don't know where it is it might be on the internet Good luck. It's probably on my SoundCloud or something. It was really cool getting to work with Pomplamoose and seeing how you all rehearse and how you give each other feedback on each other's pieces in the process of rehearsal. And yeah, you have a really beautiful way of working together. Did it feel like it was natural to be able to work together in that way? Or was there a learning process? Like, okay, this is how it works to communicate with people. Maybe this is some stuff I should avoid when I'm like giving feedback well I mean we've just been together for a really long time Andrew and Dave and I have been in this group together since 2006 and then before that Andrew and I were in the group since 2003 and so there's been like some changes in the group you know Brian joined in 2012 and Jesse came and went and Weston joined in like 2015 and then went to Berlin. Everybody's moving to Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like we all developed our compositional voices together, like their original Pomplamoose. And and so we were like, of course, wanting feedback from each other because it was like a very new thing that we were doing. And I think that we really look for that when we're incorporating new people in the group or people that are like interested in the process of creation and, and not afraid to receive criticism, I guess, or not even criticism. I don't think that's the right word. Just like talking openly about the music in a way that's like constructive and productive, you know, we all know what it is when it's good. And we all know what it is when it's like not quite there. I think that we have like some kind of tacit agreement about that. And so, you know, we work towards making that better and we each see different things in each piece that can be better or can be changed. And of course, like a lot of times we have opinions about each other's pieces and we voice those opinions and then whoever composed the piece is like, okay, well, thanks, but I don't agree. So (laughs) I don't know. There's no, there's, there's like never hard feelings about talking openly about music and pompous. It's just like, yeah, we're doing this to make the music better. Obviously there's no ulterior motive or anything. We just did a project a couple of weeks ago in Tulsa, actually, with somebody new, Just Sang, joined us, and that was really fun, awesome. She's a percussionist and wrote a piece for us. This piece where we play a little bit of concert bass drum and vocalize while two, two of us do that and two other people hit us on the back. 
So that was super fun. That is a great sound when one person is vocalizing and someone else is hitting them on the back. But yeah, that's it. it was great. That's a cool idea. Yeah, it's very primordial, I feel like. Yeah, totally. That was an awesome piece. I really enjoyed playing it. So you've been with an ensemble pop and blues for a long time now. How much how much of an influence has that had in your own like compositional development? I think it's yeah, no, hugely influential. That's like where I developed my voice, definitely. I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying my voice is like I hope my voice isn't done developing, but you know, it's like a, a continuing process, but definitely like the the beginnings of it were with Pomplamus. Well, what are your major influences currently? Is it like academia? Is it parenthood? What's uh, what's driving you to new directions? I shook my head when you said academia, but actually, I I do get a lot of inspiration from my students. I don't find academia musically inspiring as like a a thing, but I don't know. Talk is a big inspiration. Pompom is a big inspiration. <laughs> Jack is a big inspiration. My friends are my big inspirations primarily. And there's also, I was working on this piece a while ago, maybe this piece or maybe the Jack piece. I don't remember exactly, but, and I was kind of like struggling with it a little bit and just, or maybe it was after I came back from a trip where I I was like unsure about what I was doing musically or something I don't remember but I picked Kaden up from school and and we were going to go to a concert in New York and we were going to the car and he was just like literally running circles around me skipping and like just being really happy and I was like oh this is what I want music to be about I want it to be about like something very real you know that's like high stakes like happiness is high stakes you know it's something that's not I like it when people make high stakes music like I just saw this piece by Francois Sarhan that's like an older piece, um, but it's for two percussionists and and there's like a danger element in it, which is also which is like a different kind of high stakes, you know, like they they hit these hammers together. So there's like a really high risk of failure because it's really hard to hit two hammers together. And they use knives, which is also really high stakes because knives are really dangerous, especially if you use your hands for your living. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot, like the stakes of the pieces that you make, if they're high stakes or low stakes. And I think I gravitate towards high stakes pieces that are somehow like dealing with some kind of subject matter that's complicated or something real about life, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense to me. And you and you write so often, you'll ask an instrumentalist to play another instrument that isn't their primary thing or you a lot of your pieces are like very, very difficult, but in unusual ways. Something we talked about when you were on the podcast a few years ago. <laughs> but that's, I like that you say that happiness is high stakes, because I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way before. It is, though. When I think about Hayden, you know, like, it's really important for me that he like, is like a kid for as long as he can be, you know, because I think that if you can remember what it's like to have that kind of joy without thinking about it then you can bring that into your adulthood and it can make you a better person as an adult you know yeah and it's really counter to a lot of american society unfortunately like schooling and stuff that's kind of a tangent but no i think it's interesting with with percussionists playing with hammers and knives it makes sense why what the stakes are you could injure yourself and not be able to do your job but like, what are the actual stakes of happiness? What would you lose if it went wrong? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess 
I guess maybe what I meant was that dealing with something real like that, like it doesn't necessarily have to be happiness, but just dealing with subject matter that's real and trying to somehow deliver that artistically in a way that's creating a moment that makes sense in one way or another. And I mean, I think that is high stakes. Like if I'm not able to create a moment that makes sense artistically, then I don't really understand things. So it is high stakes for me. I guess, yeah, I guess that's a little different than high stakes for the audience member in the way that like the Sarhan piece is. That, that sounds like a daunting task. I kind of respect you taking that on. I feel like a lot of modern media can be very easily just kind of like cynical or sarcastic instead of like purposefully emotional. I kind of hate that. There's a lot of cynical and sarcastic pieces that make me upset. <laughs> Like you were saying, I think it's a lot of Western capitalist patriarchal society is kind of set up to taught us to fear the high stakes. You know, we're supposed to constantly protect ourselves from being wrong or being vulnerable or being embarrassed. Yeah. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, I guess also like, I feel like it's a very thin line. It's a very thin line between making a piece about something real it can go too far and it can seem like you're being exploitative of something, you know what I mean? Or like you're trying to manipulate your audience or you're, although I mean, not all music is a little bit manipulative inherently, but. Or you can also go too far and like, it can be painful to yourself too, I think sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Even when you're not playing with knives. Even when you're not playing with knives, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was reading um, about a performer's collaborative process with the composer and and it was it was also like kind of high stakes in the way that it unfolded there was like a very limited amount of time that occurred for the collaborative process and it was dealing with like very private material for the performer and that's like another kind of high stakes but to me that's like clearly exploitative and so I guess I yeah that's why like stakes are on my mind recently and also because I've been kind of like thinking about why I'm turned off by certain pieces and attracted to other pieces, because I feel like that level of engagement on the part of the composer and the performer comes across how high stakes it is, or, or if people are just like, eh, you know, not that there's, I mean, of course, there's a broad spectrum between eh and high stakes, I guess. That's really curious, because I feel like music, especially our kind of music, it was very, which is an abstract mode of expression to begin with, in order to like get to one of those high stakes concepts, it, you have to be a little bit more explicit, I feel like, in terms of either adding text or some kind of really overt theme. Yeah, I'm just curious how how you navigate that and like being explicit about those things, but not like to the point of um, leading the audience too much. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I'm, I really like music that's not overtly emotional, of course. Like, I feel like most of the music I listen to and really love is especially like in, in the new music scene, it's not like that at all. It's just like for my own compositional purposes, those are the things that attract me that make me feel like I'm doing something that I like. And I wouldn't even say that all my pieces achieve that at all. But I didn't work with text for a long time because I was really afraid to do that. And when I first started working with text, I think the God-fearing woodsman is maybe the first piece I did with text actually. Um, and I, I had a InspiroBot, which is an inspirational quote generator AI, come up with the starting bit of that story, and then I expanded it on my own. 
And I kind of followed that process for a while with my pieces that involve text. I had an AI generate some of the text and then I edited it. And then now AIs are so good that I don't like their text anymore. <laughs> and so I've had to start writing my own text, which is really hard, but I don't know. I'm working on it. That's wild. Did did you hear about this happened like a year ago? I was just rereading articles about this engineer who worked at Google and was going around to the press saying, we have a sentient AI. And like he wrote a paper about it. And I didn't read about that. No. Yeah, he had. He, I guess he wrote a paper that he delivered to Google. And then he I think he also sent it to people in the press and he ended up getting like put on leave or something um, from Google. Why? Because I think because, well, I don't know, probably because they were like, if if you really think this AI is sentient, then you're crazy. Yeah, maybe. Mm. And then one of the articles I was reading talked about the Turing test, the Alan Turing test. And he said that it will be a real benchmark when AI can fool humans into thinking that it's human. Um, but the article also said that now we can almost maybe look at it as an ethical marker maybe we actually should try to leave an element of awkwardness or uncanniness in AI so that we're not like fooling people or misleading people. Yeah, I I don't know. I I feel a little bit like the definition of sentience is a little bit it's obviously like debatable and complicated and confusing, but I think there's a lot of fear about sentience in AIs, and that's confusing to me because we give so much of, of our lives away already to computers and electronics and everything. And I, I like the things that come out of computers, and I think it's interesting to think about what would happen if they did take over a lot of the kind of more mundane creative processes that we do now because that's just part of our practice. So the piece that I actually, the oh yeah, the solo piece that I'm going to perform on the concert. Um, a big chunk of that piece. So when I was working on that, I was kind of like, I was at this point that I really wanted the piece to do something and I couldn't figure out how to make it do it. And so I went through all these like normal things. I was like, oh, maybe it's like, I have to like tune it differently because it's like sounding a little gritty or something. And, or maybe I need to just like repeat some stuff or I don't know. And then my computer just like broke and made this like incredibly beautiful thing. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I want it to sound like. And it really felt, <laughs> and now I'm going to sound crazy, but like <laughs> it felt my computer had like come up with the solution for me. Like it, it felt like very soulful and it had made this beautiful thing out of this material that, which is what I wanted it to do, but I couldn't like discover how to do it. And it, it was great. And that's in the piece now. It's like my favorite part of the piece. What part of the piece is it? It's when I tell the story, there's like a background track. Mm. Background track is what my computer made. And it's just like, you know, it's my computer glitching out because it's like processing too much information. And now it's funny. I can't recreate it now because of operating system upgrades. <laughs> this instrument and in logic and it doesn't glitch out anymore. So I can't make it do it anymore. Which I think is like kind of interesting, actually. It uh, it fixed this really awesome creative thing. It's like you 
you had a couple of great recording sessions with a performer and you're never going to be able to work with that performer again, but you have the recordings. Do you have any wishes for like stuff you wish there was AI that could do it? Mm, yeah, I wish I wish that the like mid journey or Dali stuff was like, I wish that you were able to, or maybe you can do this and I just don't know how to do it. You weren't able to recently, but I wish you could generate sequences of images so that you could, you know, do stop motion stuff. Or I wish they did video stuff. So I've seen people do kind of fake video stuff with some of those generated images, but I don't think they're generating video just yet. Mm, that would be really cool. But image sequences would even be very, very useful. I haven't figured out how to do it yet. I got kind of close, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. I've seen some things on TikTok of people doing things kind of similar to that with images, kind of a static image that sort of blends into another one, which yeah. creates a kind of animation, but I don't think it's doing it uh, necessarily frame by frame. Yeah, I've seen those too. Yeah. I think about Princess Mononoke a lot because it's Gaiden's favorite movie and I've seen it like 45 times, but how like every frame of that is hand painted, you know, so much of that process is done by a bunch of people that we don't know the name of. I don't even know how many people on that team, on that team that just like, I mean, not like every single frame is hand painted from scratch, but you know what I mean? Like there's like a whole team of people that did a lot of that artistic work that we don't, we don't really know who they are. That kind of labor is really visible in the final product. I don't know where I'm going with this exactly. For sure. Yeah. You can feel it. Even, even if you can't necessarily pinpoint it visually, for me, I feel like it's a feeling or something. It's like very rigorous. Yeah, I feel like older animation seems a little bit less uh, polished. It's like a little bit rough around the edges in certain spots, which it's, makes it seem so much more human, I guess, because it literally is. Yeah, and just like more interesting. Like every time I watch that movie, I see something, I see more Easter eggs in it, you know? I mean, I'm sure there's movies that are made completely digitally that still have hidden stuff in it, but but the amount of time that you spend with material is... I think it's proportional to the amount of care that you take with it or that you feel for it. Yeah. Which is kind of, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. No, no, you go. Well, I've been thinking about a big philosophical question, but why do we even make art? And I think it's because I think we make art partially as a way to connect with other people. People want to see art that's made by other people, even if we're confused a little bit right now and think think we just want to watch TV to relax or to entertain ourselves. I think like deep down, art is about understanding other people or some, somehow connecting with other people. And I feel like the fact that we, f we feel something more human in a piece of animation that was made by 50 people rather than an animation that was computer generated by like five people. Uh, maybe that could be evidence of that. But then again, lots of people built the programs that animated the Pixar stuff, whatever. I'm sure lots of people work on Pixar movies, but... So I wonder how AI fits into that. I think you're right that it's like a cool, a really cool tool. And maybe there is a kind of a personhood in AI too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I heard this podcast about AI once from the author of this book, <laughs> this title I can't remember because it was <laughs> ago now, but um, but he wrote a kid's book and it sounded really dark and I was like, I'm definitely not getting that book because it sounded really depressing. Anyway, it was about evolution and 
anyway, he was talking about how the thing when you think about AIs is just like who is like what group of people is in charge of programming that that algorithm, you know? And if it's an algorithm programmed by like these really amazing creative humans, that's great. And if it's an AI programmed by like people that want to control the world or like kill everybody, <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. probably less great. I don't really subscribe very often to if AIs take over the world, we're all going to turn into robots kind of thing. But I think it is like, it's scary to think about corporations just running AIs hundred percent. You know, that's, that's scary. I don't like that idea because they are primarily out for one thing and they don't prioritize creativity because creativity is, it doesn't have a monetary equivalent really, unless you're mm-hmm. talking about a very specific kind of creativity. That's like, <laughs> How do you make the best weapon or something? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, disruption. Yeah, something that's like totally pointless, like art. It's not not a good source of income. Yeah. I would wager that art is also, though, much more complex than learning how to build a weapon. I've heard also that AI is being taught to code now, which is maybe a better application for it. You know, AI right now just kind of extrapolates lots of things from across the web and then it spits out an amalgamation, but it doesn't really have the capacity yet, I guess. So I can internalize it and filter it through like a bad day. Hmm. That's interesting. A bad day. Although I was also hearing about, I heard this other guy talking about neural networks and how for a long time AI wasn't using neural networks because they were like, this is ridiculous. And then now like all AIs are neural networks. Um and how that's actually like more of the way to think about human intelligence is as a neural network versus like this kind of progression through um, hypothesis and proving things, you know, which I think we often think about education in that in that way still. We still think about in order to learn something, you have to be able to prove it. But actually like something that's a lot more realistic about the way that humans learn stuff is that you gather a lot of experiences and knowledge and then you kind of make intuitive conclusions based on all of that information which is like how our neural network works like it just all depends on your level of communication and your relationship to that material if you can actually like explain it in this way that I think we often expect people to do like in academic institutions where it's like okay this is the thing that I'm trying to prove and this is how I'm proving it and it's based on all of this very specific like statistical information totally yeah Yeah. A little less realistic or something. Yeah. And I think I think there are a lot of great singers, for instance, who can't explain the mechanism of the voice, but they know they understand it. They understand their voice and how to do it. And I think there are a million examples like that. Well, Natasha, would you indulge us in a short game of would you rather before you have to go? <laughs> sure. Okay. If you had to be shrunk down and live in a board game for the rest of your life. Would you rather live in a game of chess or a game of mousetrap? Yes. Why? <laughs> I don't like mousetrap. It's boring. I mean, I like the like uh, part where you build it up and then it does a little thingy, but I don't. It's, I like strategy games. Would you rather meet dinosaurs or aliens? Hmm, what kind of aliens? What kind of dinosaurs? I think for the purpose of this, you can pick the time period that you want to go back to if you have a specific kind of dinosaur. But aliens is just uh, maybe something from like the Star Trek universe. Aliens. Like they might be like not humanoid aliens, right? Right. We have no idea. Yeah. I'd say aliens. Yeah. 
I think you could meet an alien and like not even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> I might be an alien actually. <laughs> Would you rather have a single elephant tusk coming out of your mouth or a head of snakes for hair? Snakes. Seems really hard to have a tusk coming out of your mouth. Yeah. How do you get in the subway? That's true. It would really affect your lifestyle choices. I think you would probably have to drive a car most of the time. Would you rather be a butterfly or a jellyfish? Butterfly. I mean, I don't know. That's hard. That is a hard one. I like the idea of living underwater, but jellyfish are kind of pariahs right now. They're causing a lot of problems, but it's just because they work so well with the current state of the oceans. It's not their fault that the water's so acidic. That's true. That's true. I think I'd have to go for butterfly, though. Yeah, they get to migrate. I don't think jellyfish migrate, really. Yeah. I'm curious about jellyfish consciousness. Yeah. I think I might try it. <laughs> you might try it? I might try it, yeah, if I get uh, three wishes. <laughs> I want to be a jellyfish, then a butterfly, <laughs> an alien. Okay, thank you, Natasha, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We are super, super excited to have you on Swoonfest. Very much looking forward to that. Oh, and also I wanted to say that the students at Penn have also been like totally inspiring to us. They're such a great group. Yay. And they have cool ideas. It's been fun to work with them. Okay. Okay. Bye. Have a good day. This has been the Talk Editions podcast with Natasha Deals. Catch Natasha on May 6th at 6 p.m. at the Clemente Center as part of Swoonfest. More information about the festival is at the link in the show notes or at talkensemble.com. This podcast was produced by Charlotte Mundy, Ellery Trafford, and Marina Kifferstein, and edited by me, Charlotte Mundy. The music at the beginning and end of this episode is excerpted from a live recording of Natasha's piece, Somewhere Beautiful. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with a friend. See you at Swoonfest, and thanks for listening.